Well, good morning, everybody. I'm excited to, uh, to be with you all. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm the college pastor here, and I uh, work with, with these folks over here. Um, I do want to start by saying just a general thank you in terms of um, if you support and give to our church, you're ultimately supporting and giving to the college ministry, and God is doing really some great things. Um, we're seeing more students in discipleship than you know before. We're seeing more students in worship, more students make decisions. In fact, Tuesday night, we're moving across the street to the East Sanctuary, which has taken a lot of work to get that room ready, but it's because we need the space, and so God's working and moving. So thanks for your support and your prayer for us. I'm excited about what's going to happen uh, this semester. I'm going to start just warning you. I'm going to give you really depressing news, okay? But then I'm going to blow that news out of the water, okay? So um, we are fast approaching um, a week and a day away from what is commonly known as Blue Monday. I don't know if you've heard of Blue Monday before. It's the third Monday of January. It is supposedly the most depressing day of the year. See, I told you. Like, you're like, what a great sermon intro. I was ready for some encouragement, right? So we're coming up to the most depressing day of the year. In 2005, a researcher decided to try to circle a date. What's the most depressing day of the year? So he came up with some formulas, some ideas, and he put it together, and he picked the third Monday of January. His reasoning is um, that the holiday high has worn off by that point. Um, that credit card statements have come in. Anybody? Anybody? Somebody? Okay. And that weather and some other factors, I mean, it's just typically, it's just not a, a fun time, you know? And so he was like, this is the most depressing day of the year. So bad news, you're coming up to the most depressing day of the year. But good news, a couple years after he released all this, he came back out and literally said, yeah, I made that whole thing up. Like, no joke, I made the whole thing up. He said, I was working for an airline company and a travel agency, and they were looking for a marketing pitch to sell vacations, and so I acted like this was the most depressing day in hopes that when you feel depressed, you go, let me buy a trip to, you know, Hawaii or whatever. And so, in, in some ways, that should make you feel better. There is no most depressing day, as the more I thought about it, the more, like, angrier I got about the whole thing, that somebody could go, here's my research, and we all believe it, and then later on, it's like, yeah, never mind, that was just a joke. Um, so, there you go, no depressing day um, of the year, but I will tell you this, and I think we can all agree. Though there isn't the most depressing day of the year, let's just be honest, we are in a depressing season right now. I think we would all agree to that. That it's not the most depressing day, but yeah, we're in a stretch right now. Obviously, COVID comes to mind. It is just, you know, the, 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 the thing that just will not go away. And though there looks to be light at the end of the tunnel, when will we reach the end of the tunnel? We don't know. And it's just, it cancels our plan. It's messed with our stuff. It's just, it's, some of us have experienced loss because of it. I mean, it's just this thing that's in our lives and it causes us to kind of just be depressed about what's going on. Obviously, beyond that, economical problems intimately tied to COVID, but still economical problems, businesses shut, our bottom line affected, and it causes this season of us just feeling despair and depression, right, about this. And then beyond that, if those weren't enough, beyond that we have social and political unrest, and let's just be honest, this was a bad week, right? And it's just this stretching of this time. And, and I began to sit down, like at the beginning of quarantine, 
I sat down and I was trying to figure out, and this, this might look like a fool's errand, but I was trying to figure out why is this so hard? And that sounds almost like a, a foolish question because you, I think most of us would say it's hard because of the circumstances. My, my thing got canceled, my bank account, my this, my that. Like we can just point to a circumstance and say it's hard because of the circumstance. But, but I began to feel like, no, this is harder than the sum of all of our circumstances. Like if you add all of our circumstances together, it still doesn't feel like this. Like this is just hard and why is it so hard? And the answer dawned on me, and maybe, you know, who am I to come up with an answer like that? But I really got the sense, I think it is so hard, not just because of the circumstances, but it's because we're waiting. It's one of the very few times in life where we're all collectively waiting. And waiting is always hard. I started to think about waiting and I started thinking about, well, there's really different types of waiting, but in all honesty, like there is no type of waiting that is easy, so they kind of get harder as you go. Like the first level of waiting, which is still hard, is this, is waiting for something that you're excited about, but you know the date. It's just hard to, you're, you're, you're excited, you want to get there, so it's just hard to wait. And so you're talking about things like, you know, anniversaries and weddings and maybe a birth and holidays. Or if you're a college student or high school student, graduation, like, you know the date. You are waiting to get to that date. That's hard to wait when you're excited about something. But then there's a second level that's infinitely harder than that, and that is this waiting on a day, not that you're excited about, but waiting on a day that you dread, right? Isn't that harder than waiting on a day you're excited about? As you see that day get closer and closer and closer, it's just hard. Maybe it's a deadline. Maybe it's a project. Maybe it's a test that you know you have to take. Maybe it's a conversation. You just kind of know in advance, like the next time I see that person, it's going to be a bad interaction. Maybe it's a meeting that you know is coming and you don't want to be a part of that meeting. Maybe it's a legal matter that you know, like, I don't even know how it's going to be solved yet, but I know it's going to be solved on that day and I'm pretty much dreading it. Like waiting for something you're excited about is hard, but waiting for something you dread is even harder. But there's even a last level of waiting that is harder still. And this is the one that I think we're all in the midst of right now. And that is this, waiting for the relief of pain and suffering when you do not know the date and you do not know the solution. That's hard. And that's what we're all in. And so we go to the most, you know, applicable moments right now, and we go, well, yeah, coronavirus, COVID, like, we don't know when it will be over. Herd immunity, like, when does that even happen? Like, the goalposts keep moving a little bit, and so we're like, is it going to be on this month or this month? And we don't know the date. Not only do we not know the date, we don't even really know how we're getting there, right? That's that's hard. Economical problems and just how it's affecting us. Like we don't know the date when we return or you know, turn the corner and we're back on track. We don't know the date and we don't even know all the things that need to happen to cause that to happen. Like we don't know the solution. It's difficult. Or 
Social political unrest is just a hateful, it's just a hateful time and everyone's divided and we feel like maybe there's a hope or a chance or can we go back to normal? Can we go back to before and what's the date? We don't know the date when that will happen. What's the solution? And you might have a theory and I might have a theory, but I'd hate to break it to you. We'd both be wrong about it, right? Like we just don't know the solution. Now, those are kind of the things that unite us all, but here's the thing that I also know is that some of you are like, man, I'm already a pro, like y'all are catching up to me, but I'm already a pro at this because you've been waiting for pain and suffering to end in your own personal life for a long time and you've never known the date and the solution. Some of us have marriages that are filled with stress and strife and trouble and problems and we've been waiting for the solution, but we don't know what the solution is and we don't know when it will happen. Some of us have been waiting through health problems either in our own life or a family member, but we don't know the date and we don't know the solution. And some of us in this room right now are waiting to get free of some type of sin, addiction, or habit in our lives. But we do not know the date that will happen and we don't know, Lord knows, we don't know how it's gonna happen. Waiting is always difficult. And I think we were so excited that 2020 was over as if we could personify a year, like by 2020, you know, and it's like, it's just a year, you know. But we were so excited that 2020 was over and 2021 is gonna come in, but there's really no clear indication that any of these problems are gonna be solved quickly or easily and we don't know the date and we don't know the solution. So how, here's the question, how do we wait well? How do we wait with hope? I wanna take you to a passage of scripture where we look at a New Testament character that we honestly just don't know a whole lot about, but we do know this, he waited well. He waited with hope. Now, you're gonna be tempted when I tell you what passage it is. It's Luke chapter two. You're gonna be tempted to go, this college pastor's crazy. He's reading a Christmas story. Doesn't he know that it's January the 10th? I would push back on you and say, this is actually not a Christmas story. It's tagged to the end of the Christmas story, but in this story, Jesus is 40 days old. We're only 16 days past Christmas, so I'm well within the time frame, okay? Just so you know, okay, in case you're thinking that. So 40 days old, Jesus and, and his family are gonna interact with this character. And we don't know a lot about him, but we know this. He waited well, he waited with hope. And as we look at 2021, we're gonna notice some things about him. Now, here's what I wanna say to you, okay? We're gonna go through four things that he did, that he, that he was able to do that caused him to wait well. But I want you to know they all build on one another, interact with one another, they overlap with one another. They're all vitally important to grab. And I'll also give you this little hint. The fourth one is the most important one. If you get number four, you almost get by default one through three. Okay, so let's look at this. Luke chapter two, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, that would be Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Just some context here. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus go to the temple. Now this just shows us and teaches us that Mary and Joseph are religious, devout Jewish people. They're just obeying the law. The first law, the first thing they're doing is they're presenting their firstborn son at the temple. 
That was a command of the law of Moses. The second thing they're doing is they're doing a purification ceremony because the law of Moses said that after a woman gave birth, she was unclean for 40 days. So they're doing both of these at the same time. They're going to make a sacrifice. By the way, this passage teaches us through you know, just context that Jesus came from very modest means because the law of Moses required a lamb and a dove. But it made exception if you were poor. It says you don't have to do a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, you can do two doves. And so what Luke is saying here is Mary and Joseph and two doves and Jesus are going to the temple. So this is where the character pops up. Guy named Simeon. Look at verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. That's just a simple sentence. But in that sentence are so many hugely important things. As we look at a year that could stretch on and the waiting could go longer or shorter, we just don't know. Beyond that, we don't know what other surprises are in our way that we're going to have to wait through. As we look at this year and this sentence, just this simple sentence or multiple things that we should consider, trying to figure out how do we wait well and wait with hope. First thing to say about Simeon is this. We don't know very much about him. He literally only makes a few sentences here and then fades into the backdrop and we never see nor hear from him again. We don't know how old he was. We assume he was old because at the end of the passage he says, now I can die in peace. So he's probably at the end of his life. One apocryphal gospel text, we don't consider it a canon, like a book of the a canon of scripture, but it said that he was 113 years old. I don't think he was that old, but we have no way of knowing if he was old, middle-aged, we don't know. Second of all, we don't know his heritage. We don't know his father. We don't know if he married. Does he have kids? We don't know any of that. Third, we don't even know his occupation. We assume he was a priest, or some make that assumption, but we have no way of knowing it's interesting that Luke, who writes one of the most detailed gospels, I mean, that's what Luke tried to do. He wanted to give you the most detailed gospel he could. It's almost as if Luke was saying, none of that stuff is important. What you need to see is his character. You need to see that his life was marked by waiting, and you need to see how he waited well. This is the message of Simeon's life. This is what we can draw out of it. How did Simeon wait well? It's tucked away in this. Let's look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was, first thing, righteous and devout. Luke says, let's start there. He was righteous and devout. Now, the, the original language here for righteous and devout, it paints a picture. What it paints is this. It paints a picture of someone who is exact, just exact, laser focus. Someone who is precise. I mean, straight down the middle, precise. Someone who is consistent. I mean, just every day, one foot in front of the other, consistent. Somebody who has so turned their heart and mind to God that they would not disobey God. Somebody, you know, I had my granddaddy when I was growing up. One time he was, you know, he died when I was in sixth grade. But one time my granddaddy, um, you know, did something that granddaddies have a tendency to do. And like, you know, son, I'm going to learn you something, you know. And so he kind of came up to me and he goes, uh, Timothy, he called me Timothy. Timothy, you know the difference between a, a boy and a man is? And I said, uh, no, you know. And he goes, uh, well, a man puts his feet on the ground, the job gets done. And I was like, 
Thank you, Granddaddy, uh, for that. Mis- I didn't. I didn't know what to do with it. But I would. I would add to that that what this picture is is of a righteous man. A righteous man is one who every morning puts his feet on the ground and in that moment says, "Today I'm going to obey. I'm going to get the job done. I'm going to obey. Come what may, whatever's thrown at me, whatever the next right thing is, I'm going to do the next right thing. I'm going to honor God and obey Him." The way Simeon waited well is by waiting righteously. And that's how one of the huge keys for us is we're going to wait. We need to wait righteously, obeying God as we wait. Let me tell you why that is so important. Because as the waiting stretches on, we have a tendency to believe that if I take matters into my own hands and just do something, if I tell this one lie, it'll solve the problem. Or if I do this one, you know, you know I, I make this number into that number. I do this little accounting trick, but I'm really stealing. But if I do this one thing, it solves the problem. Or if I lash out in anger and vengeance, it'll solve the problem. What we do is we go, God, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to get out in front of you in disobedience. The way I know that you and I are always tempted to do this is because the Bible is littered with stories of Old Testament characters who go, God, I'm tired of waiting. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And how does it always end up? Terrible. It's the great temptation of us. I'm tired of waiting. This is a shortcut. I'm gonna go for it. No one's watching. But Luke says, no, Simeon was precise, righteous, exact. Here's the thing that I wanna, I feel like I need to push pause on the message. I've done this for the other services too, but I feel like I need to push pause right here because as I was preparing this, I began to think of like how, what you walk away with. And I, I grew concerned at this point in the message, to be totally honest with you. I was worried that if you left here today, let's say you were to stand up right now and walk out the door and you don't stay for the next couple minutes. If you left here today and all you took away from my message was this, you're gonna wait Wait well, and the way you wait well is by obeying. And that's all you took away. I have totally failed you. Because if you just go out the door and go, well, I'm gonna wait, I just need to wait well, so what that means is I just gotta really white-knuckle obedience and just make it happen and force my way through it. Listen, one of two things can happen to you, and both of them are bad. The first thing that can happen to you is you'll become self-righteous. And you'll look at the rest of us who are waiting and you'll go, oh, you don't wait as good as I wait. I wait better than you do. I obey better than you do. Look at that person. This is a Pharisee. They were waiting. They just weren't waiting well. They're self-righteous. That's possible. But the second thing is more likely. If you leave here and go, the only thing I heard is wait, wait well, gotta obey while I wait. If that's the only thing you take and apply, What will eventually happen more than likely is this. You're going to grow tired and you're going to quit. If you don't have the fuel behind that, and we're going to get to the fuel in a second, but if you don't have the fuel behind your obedience, you're going to grow weary and you're going to give up and you're going to say what countless Christians have said before you, which is, God, I'm tired of doing all the right things when nothing is getting solved. I'm tired of obeying when the waiting just keeps stretching out. I'm tired of always showing up and doing the thing I'm supposed to do. I'm just gonna give up. Have any of you ever said anything remotely close to that? Surely I'm not the only one, because I know I have. 
We can't do just this one. We can't just say, well, I'm gonna wait righteously. We have to find the fuel behind that action. So let's move on. He says, hey, listen, this Simeon guy was righteous and devout. And then he goes on in verse 25. He said, there's a man, Jerusalem, called Simeon who was righteous and devout. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What was he waiting on? The consolation of Israel. He was waiting on the consolation of Israel. Now, what I, what I mean, and I think we really have to see this, is that this was no small thing. This was not a small thing that he was waiting on God to do. This is no small prayer request. I always give college students a hard time, like the, the five, you know, the prayer right before a, a test, like God just help me pass this test. Like, okay, in the grand scheme, that's a pretty small prayer request. This is no small prayer request. This, I'm waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is not a small thing. This is literally the thing. This is the most important thing. This was the biggest thing that a Jewish mind could possibly conceive of. He wasn't waiting on God in small ways. Oh no, he was waiting on God in big ways. And you might be tempted as you listen to this passage, you might be tempted to say, so what? Wasn't everyone waiting for the consolation of Israel? You know, we just went through Christmas. You know the stories. Wasn't everyone waiting for the consolation of Israel? How does that make him unique? And the answer to that question is this. Simeon lived at a very unique time in history. See, decades before this, this huge empire called Rome settles in. They come in. They ransack their temple. In fact, in fact the commander of that officer rode his horse through every court of the temple and then walked to the Holy of Holies and flung open the drape and walked in. A Gentile Roman stood and looked around and basically said to Jerusalem and to all the Jews, where's your God? And then walked out. See, decades before this, this huge empire that was powerful and well-trained and well-funded and strong and weapons that they could not beat settled in and imposed taxes and imposed laws. And the vast majority of Jews at this point in time in history started going, it is hopeless. It's hopeless. This problem's too big. It'll never go back. And a good portion of Jewish people were going, perhaps my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, and beyond just lied to us. Because even if a Messiah is going to come, how could they throw over a problem this big? It's hopeless. Do you see how their time mirrors our time? Yeah, we don't have, praise God, we don't have a foreign power that has come in and, and broken through our borders and dominates our country. That's not true for us. We don't have Rome, but we do have a pandemic. We don't have Rome, but we do have economical problems. We don't have Rome, but we have society, you know, political division and, and, and hate. We don't have Rome but you then have your own personal problems of what's going on in your life. And some of us have come to a place in time, even in our own life, not just nation, but even just in our own life, where the problems have become so immense and so big and so unsolvable that you have a tendency to throw your hands in the air and say, roll the credits, this is over, 
this is hopeless. But Luke says, but hold on, there was a guy named Simeon who was waiting righteously, but then here's the second point. He was waiting with expectancy. Everyone else was saying, roll the credits, pack it up, let's go home. They're starting to head off. Simeon is leaned forward in his chair going, you guys are about to miss it, stay here. The best part is coming, just wait for the ending, stay, sit back down. I'm waiting because Simeon knew something. He knew at any moment God could break into this circumstance. At any moment God could change this. At any moment. So I don't want to miss it. I have a lot of expectancy that God's about to do something. It's as if every day for Simeon was not just a day of I'm going to live righteously, but every day was also a day where he said, you know what, the Messiah could come today. And then at the end of that day, he goes, well, the Messiah didn't come today, but tomorrow or the next. But at any moment, he could break in. Let me ask you this question. Do you expect anything out of your relationship with God? That, That sounds kind of a weird question. Do you expect anything out of your relationship with God? Or is it just the same old, same old, tired, routine, stale, half dead, nothing new going to happen type of relationship? Do you expect anything new? When you look at 2021, do you look with any measure of hope, either for our nation or just for you? What about you? Do you look at any measure of hope? You know what? I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this. God's going to speak to me in new ways. God's going to challenge me in new ways. God's going to empower me to do his work in new ways. God is going to set me free in new ways this year. I'm going to see new sides of him and learn new truth, and I am going to grow. God's going to do something incredible in my life this year. Or is it just, well, you know. When you come to church, do you expect that God's going to move Or is it, well, you know, they want us at life group this week, so we better get ready a little bit early, just put on the clothes, go through the motions. I mean, it should fire us up to go. You know, the promise of Scripture is where two or more are gathered, there I am with them also. The Holy Spirit's in the room, and so it should fire us up to go, man, I don't know what's going to happen today, but God's about to speak. Walls are going to come down. People are going to make decisions. He's going to challenge me. Do you expect anything out of God, out of your relationship with God? See, Simeon's waiting righteously, He's also waiting with great expectancy. That's not all. There's a third thing. Look at this. Start again. Now, there's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And then moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. Luke is really, 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 really trying to press this to you. He mentions it three times in very quick order. Who is the character behind this story? It's the Holy Spirit. Look at it. I mean, Luke wants you to see. He goes, hey, you might be tempted. You might be tempted to celebrate Simeon, but Simeon's not the main character. The main character, this is the Holy Spirit. Look at what it says about, it says that Simeon and the Holy Spirit had three unique kind of encounters here, right? Three moments of connection, three points of connection. The first, it says, the Holy Spirit was on him. 
Now, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to read it with New Testament goggles on and, you know, gospel goggles on and go, no big deal, the Holy Spirit's on every believer. If you accept Christ, he gives you the Holy Spirit. And that's true now, but this is pre-resurrection. Anytime in the Old Testament where it says the Holy Spirit is on somebody, you should take note of that. Because what it means is he had so opened himself up to the Spirit and put himself forward towards the Spirit, the Spirit was able to do something in his life in a unique way. And you say, well, how did he do that? Well, by living righteously and living with great expectancy. So the Holy Spirit was really on him. Okay, well, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's on you. That's good. Now, but look at the next part. It says not only was the Holy Spirit on him, but it had been revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. In other words... Holy Spirit was on him, but the Holy Spirit had painted the big picture of his life. He knew where he was going. The big picture was in front of him. He knew. That's great. But it goes more than that. Not only on him, not only big picture painted for him, but ready? Prompted that day, the Holy Spirit told him, Simeon, it's time to go to the temple. He had daily direction. Simeon, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was on him. It had painted the big picture for his life, and it gave him daily direction. You could make a series just out of that. Now listen, the point of this is Simeon wasn't just waiting righteously. He wasn't just waiting expectantly, but he was also waiting with daily inspiration daily inspiration. And it is easy when you look at Simeon and his interaction, it is easy, and it's easy to do this with any Bible character, by the way, it is easy to look at him and go, well, he's some untouchable character. I'll never be like that. Listen, Simeon was just a man. What Simeon had, God desires for you. He desires the spirit to be on your life he desires to paint the big picture for your life, and then he desires to give you daily inspiration to guide you through your life. That's what he wants for you. It's not just for Simeon or a select few or Pastor Bob. It's for all. The floodgates are open. It's for everybody. The problem is, is we're not putting ourselves in a position to receive that. I work with college students, these people over here, and and uh, we love working, me and Natalie love working with college students. And college students, let me tell you, the great thing about them is they ask great questions. They ask great questions. Um, and they don't really, they're never really satisfied with the standard answer. They want you to go deeper or go further than that. Um, and so we have great, you know, have great conversations and it's great stuff. And one, I'll tell you the most, the most popular question, and you probably remember hopefully college and you kind of remember where you were. The most popular question when you're in those college years is this, what is God's will for my life? It's the most popular. Get it all the time. And in the asking of that question, what tends to bubble up, not always, but a lot of times, is either overt or covert. They say something along the lines of this, God's will for my life is some big, huge mystery that's really hard to figure out. And the first thing you try to correct in that moment is this, God's mystery for your life is, or God's will for your life is not a mystery. It's not a mystery. Most of it is laid out in his word. 
It's up to us to open and read it, but most of it is laid on his word. But beyond that is that as we walk with him in a really meaningful way and, and look at his word, he wants, he desires to paint for you the big picture. Hey, I've called you, I've equipped you, I've made you passionate about, I've given you talents and abilities towards this direction. For me, it's Tim, I've called you to ministry, but for you, it's, hey, go this direction. This is what I have for you in this season, in this moment, go. Here's the big picture. And if that wasn't enough, then he desires to say, Daily, hey, let me help you along and give you what you need to know. Wait, wait, we wait well. It's by waiting righteously with expectancy, listening for his voice, we hear inspiration and we move forward. And the last part is this, and this is probably the most critical point. Look at verse 27. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praise God. I would tell you, don't do this. What Simeon just did, don't do unless the Holy Spirit leads you. You're gonna get punched by a mom, all right, if that's what you do. Uh, there, when we had kids, we would walk through Walmart and people would just pick up your baby like, oh, other Walmart merchandise in your car, you know? Don't do that. If they're cute, leave them alone. So he walks up to him, strange scene, but in the power of God's, you know, the way this works, he just grabs the baby and holds it up and listen to what it says in verse 28. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, ready? Sovereign Lord. He y'all, he didn't even fully know what Jesus was about to be about. He's looking at a baby. Sovereign Lord. I think he, I think he cited sovereign Lord. He identifies God. Sovereign. What does sovereign mean? Sovereign means simply this, and we could go for a whole nother you know, hour. I won't do that to you, but what does sovereign mean? It means simply this. God is absolutely 100% in control. He is in control of every detail of the chaotic world around you. He is in control of every chaotic detail of your family. He is in control of every chaotic detail of your life. He is working and moving according to his purpose and to his will to accomplish his purpose in your life. There is nothing that surprises him nor catches him off guard. He is sovereign. When Simeon saw Jesus, he knew this. I knew it. I knew it. I knew God was sovereign. Everyone else gave up. I knew it. God, you are sovereign. Sovereign Lord. Look at what he says. Sovereign Lord. As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon waited righteously. He waited expectantly. He waited with divine or daily inspiration. And then finally, and this is the most important, he waited with settled truth. And what was the truth? That God is sovereign. At some point in Simeon's life, the truth that God was sovereign settled from his head to his heart. It became settled truth. And then this conversation would take place. But Simeon, what about Rome? I don't know. I don't understand why God would allow it to happen. But I know that God is sovereign. But Simeon, what about the fact that your own obedience gets you in trouble sometimes? I don't know. I don't understand it. But God's working. He's sovereign. He's going he's to bring me through this. 
But Simeon, what about the fact that there's been no prophets for hundreds of years? I don't know. I don't know why it seems like God's silent, but I know that he's sovereign. And when he finally holds the baby in his hands, he says, Sovereign Lord, I knew it was true. You're sovereign. No matter how crazy and how long and how bad it got, I knew, I knew you're sovereign. Listen, there has to come a point in time in your life when it settles, the sovereignty of God settles from your head to your heart in a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching church such as this one. It is easy because we know the right answer. It's easy to just let the words fall off of our tongue when we're in a life group setting and say things like, well, yeah, I know, but God's in control. It's easy when we're mourning the loss and somebody comes up to try to help us to just say, I know, I know, God's in control. But there's gotta come a part, a time in your life when the, the truth of God's sovereignty settles from your head to your heart and you don't think God's in control. You know God is in control. It's settled. Why is it so important? Here's why. Because if you settle this truth I don't care what Fox News airs next. I don't care what CNN comes up with. I don't care what Facebook, Twitter, whatever. What, I don't care. It's just settled. When you settle this truth, you know what it gives you the ability to do? Live righteously. You can live righteously. Why? I know he sees all. He's working through all. I'm going to trust him and obey him. Passion of my heart is to obey him because he loves me. He's good. If you get this, settle the sovereignty issue, then all of a sudden you can live life with great hope. The rest of the world can fall apart around you, throwing up their hands in despair, and you're going, hey, just wait. Y'all are about to miss the best part. God's about to break in and do something new. In my family, in my life, in a country's life, God's about to do something. Y'all just watch. And if you settle this, sovereignty of God, then you can live and walk in daily inspiration. Why? Because you'll begin to go, Father, I don't know. My experience tells me I have no idea what's coming in this day but I know you do know what's coming today. So give me wisdom and guidance today. Ultimately, Simeon says this, and we're gonna close here. He says these words, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So I'm reading that text, those words jump off the page. The long wait is over. He's holding the promise of God in his hands, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. My prayer for us is that no matter what 2021 throws at us, how long the waiting lasts, or what turns and twists the waiting takes in your life, or what new situations come into your life that you have to wait through, that you like Simeon, me like Simeon, can say, Sovereign Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes will again see your salvation. I trust you. I believe you. You have all things under control. And praise God, you're my Father in heaven who loves me who's never left me, who's never abandoned me. I trust you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for today. It's time we can be together. And Lord, it is easy in this reading of this text to sometimes celebrate a man that's not worthy of celebration maybe of honor, but not of celebration in the sense that, I mean, it was your spirit behind the scenes. It was your sovereignty over it all. 
Father, we want to live like your son Jesus who trusted you with every moment of his day. We want to live like Simeon who trusted you. Even when he failed, he got back on track and trusted you. But Father, the world tempts us to doubt your goodness. The world tempts us to doubt your sovereignty. The world tempts us to to walk away from you and abandon you even though you have never abandoned us. I don't know what news cycle is about to break out next, but Father, I hope you, I pray that you would help us trust you in the midst of it. I don't know what this year holds for us, for me, my family, and for the rest of this church, but I pray we would say, we have seen your salvation, and I pray your salvation would break out. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.